0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Akil Amar, as always. Hello, Akil.
1: Hey, Andy. Uh, but we have something special.
0: Yes, we do. Okay. Today we have, we have a special guest, um, our friend and the great professor, uh, Gordon Wood. Um, hello, Gordon.
2: Hello. Glad to be here.
0: Thank you. So let me, uh, let me tell our audience a little bit about you before we get into the conversation. Um,
1: and, and we have been um, uh, uh, teasing this for a long time. We've been we've been promising our audience uh, 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 about uh, about this for for quite some time, Gordon. You may not know this, but but our audience does. Okay. <laughs>
0: and of course, it's very timely with with your new book, as we'll discuss. So um, for audience's benefit, uh, Gordon S. Wood, as he's known on the cover of his books, is the Alva O'Way University professor and professor of history emeritus uh, at Brown. He received his BA from Tufts and his PhD from Harvard, where he studied under Bernard Balin. He joined the faculty at Brown in 1969, and he is the author of uh, numerous books, including, first of all, The Creation of the American Republic which arose from his doctoral dissertation, and won the Bancroft Prize and the Dunning Prize. Uh, Later came the Radicalism of the American Revolution in 1992, which won the Pulitzer Prize for History and the Emerson Prize. He's also the author of The Americanization of Benjamin Franklin, which won the Howe Prize, Um, Revolutionary Characters, What Made the Founders Different, uh, The Purpose of the Past, Reflections on the Uses of History, and later, uh, the Empire of Liberty, a history of the early republic, which uh, was given the American, uh, the Association of American Publishers Award for History and Biography, the American History Book Prize, and the Society of the Cincinnati History Prize. As you can see, he's received innumerable awards uh, and medals. Most notably, I think, in 2011, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal uh, by President Obama. Um, there's a long list of medals, including the Kennedy Medal, the Centennial Medal, and he's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Philosophical Society. His greatest honor occurred recently when he taught in the Scholar program, <laughs> the, <laughs> the first American founding, with Akhil and Professor Stephen Smith, among others, in New York City, and I was personally privileged to be a student in that program. His latest book, Power and Liberty, Constitutionalism in the American Revolution was published just two weeks ago, so it's a great privilege to welcome the greatest of all living American historians, Gordon wood, to america's constitution.
2: Well, thank you very much for that uh, over the top introduction
1: thank you
0: well we we're,
1: we're, we're fanboys
0: well, these are facts, so uh you know they speak for themselves so um warden i've had the the pleasure of reading many of your books some of them quite recently and most recently was power power and liberty um constitutionalism in the american revolution um so you know why this book you know why did you write it why did you write it now at this moment and you know where does it sit in your pantheon of of writings
2: well i i wrote it because i was asked by the um uh, University of uh, Northwestern University Law School to deliver some lectures, and so I uh, put together six lectures for that uh, for for the law school. And then afterwards, I thought, well, maybe since I put these lectures together, maybe I I ought to uh, turn them into a book. So that's how it arose. It wasn't. It didn't start with a. With the notion of writing a book, and essentially it's a distillation of my thinking over the past 50, 60 years. Uh, in that sense, it, it's, it it draws on on my my thoughts that go back uh, many decades.
0: Now, it it doesn't cover the entirety of the of this. You know, obviously, it's a short book, but it its theme is is somewhat circumscribed. It's not. It doesn't cover your entire uh, overall, wouldn't you say?
2: Oh, oh yes. No, I don't uh, deal with uh, I, I, the, the implications there, but the, the notion that the revolution was more than just a, a constitutional struggle. I, 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 I don't want to in, imply by this book that uh, I think the revolution was all about constitutionalism. It's not. I think it's fundamentally a social revolution. With all kinds of ramifications for the culture and for uh, the cons- constitutionalism, so I, I'm picking out uh, an aspect of the revolution, and by no means covering the the whole revolution. I, I do believe the revolution, as Karl Becker, once put it, is 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 not only about home rule, but who would rule at home, and in the northern states, I think you have a major social. Transformation, an emergence of a middle class, uh, that um, that takes over the the society uh, in the north, that makes the sectional conflict all the all the greater because it's there's a social uh, dimension to it as well as an ideological one.
0: And you do discuss, I think, towards the end of the book, the way that the social changes actually impact on the. Legal system and the constitutional system, because you talk about the the separation between the private and the public spheres, um, and that much of that comes from the social changes, I think, as you point out.
1: Yes,
2: yes, very much so. And and what's striking is that it it this was brought to my attention by a, uh, a noted uh, French historian of of Revolutionary France who uh, who who made the same point in his his book called The Great. Demarcation. So that's the title of that chapter. I adopted from from his marvelous book, and uh, they, so that there's a suggestion that that both revolutions were involved in in the transformation from pre-modern to modernity, and, and I think the American Revolution is part of that. A whole notion of, of office holding and, and and social cultural issues. Are, are crucial in this transformation. So that, that's what I tried to sum up in that, uh, that that final chapter.
0: Now, even though this might be one aspect only of the revolution, I think you, you make a revealing statement early on in the book, in the introduction, um, which uh, speaks to the centrality of constitutionalism and the Constitution uh, to America. Um, and, of course, that makes it relevant to our podcast um, yes. The statement you make here in page three, you say, no other major nation invokes its 200-year-old founding documents and their authors in quite the way America does. And right. then you ask the question that, that I asked myself when I read that, which is, why? You know, what does it say about the Constitution and about America? And your answer is, you say, they have become the source of our identity. that Right. It, The
2: adhesive. The adhesive. The only thing that holds us together, really.
0: Because America is not really a nation, you say, in the sense of other nations. Could you expound on that a little bit?
2: Well, a nation traditionally meant uh, people with a common heritage, ethnic heritage. Uh, The French see themselves as Frenchmen. That's why they have so much trouble accepting these... Arabs who have been living in France and are French citizens for three, four generations. And nonetheless, they say, well, they're not really French and that's true of the Germans and it's true of the English. There's an ethnic base to their, um, their nationalism, uh, but that that's not po- possible in America. And it's Lincoln who, who really sees this point, uh, most clearly. In fact, I think it's Lincoln who creates the notion of the, of the founders um, being the revolutionaries, because up to the through the whole antebellum period, America thought of their founders as the 17th century founders. That is John Smith, William Bradford, William Penn, and, and so on. They, they the notion of the founders is connected with the revolution is is really almost single handedly uh, Lincoln's effort. And there's actually a book on this subject. If someone, uh, your listeners, is inter- is, is interested, uh, by uh, Wesley Frank Craven, uh, and the book came out, I think, in the early 1950s. I'm not sure the exact uh, title, uh, but it makes this point, point. and I think that's true. That Lincoln is crucial, and he he makes that point. That he's talking about all of the diversity in America. The Scandinavians coming in, these immigrants. Uh, what what claim do they have to be Americans? He said, the French, the Germans, the 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 Irish, all of these people coming in. What claim do they have to be Americans? And he says they ha- their claim is is through the founding, and they are blood of the blood and and flesh of the flesh of the founders because of the documents. He focuses on the Declaration uh, of Independence. All men are created equal, in particular. But by implication, he's implying all those documents that came out of the revolution, including the Constitution. So I think it's he who puts his finger on that, and I think that's become uh, the, the basis for our, uh, our nationalism. Because we have no other claim. Uh, we can't really claim uh, the, the history. We're a nation of immigrants. And the whole world is here in the United States. And I think it's what holds us together. That's why we pay so much attention to this founding.
0: And of course, Akil, you make the same argument in the title of your book. The words that made us. I, I, I do, and
1: I uh, and, and Gordon has influenced me here as, as everywhere, and um, and it's not just that we don't have um, ethnicity uh, in common; um, we don't have religion. Um, um, in common as as Americans. Ours is not a theocratic society that, that's based on Catholicism or, or Christendom or um, Quran and, and Islam and Sharia law. There are other regimes in the world um, that, that, that are organized around um, religious um, identity. Um, uh, we don't even, strictly speaking, kind of have language in common in that at the time of the uh, American Revolution. A third of the people living in Pennsylvania are basically native German speakers, um, and um, and and a place like New York, which began as New Amsterdam, you know, is very polyglot, many many languages as well as um, ethnicities and and different um, um, religious um, denominations.
2: That's right. Uh, John Adams in in eighteen hundred, early eighteen hundreds thought that the nation was... He put put his finger on this point. He said, we're not really a nation. He saw 19 different religious groups, and he just thought... He's in despair, because he doesn't think the the nation can hold together uh, because of this diversity. And, of course, the diversity that he's talking about is nothing compared to what developed over the next uh, 200 years. So uh, I think we're, we're in agreement on this, that this is an incredible experiment in diversity. There's just been nothing quite like it. Well, you might say the Ottoman Empire or maybe even the British Empire with all of its people, but empires are different things from, from a nation that tries to hold together so many different people and still be a democracy. Uh, you could probably rule... Uh, a diverse population. And certainly the theorists at the time, Montesquieu, would have said, you can review a r- rule of diverse population, but it has to be through monarchy, through absolute rule. And and we can't have that. So it's a great experiment to, ho- to hold all these different peoples together. Uh, it's extraordinary when you think about it.
0: Do you think that that adhes- adhesion or adhesiveness... Uh, remains today that people think you know when they think of what makes them American, they still think. Well, about
2: I think we're going we're going through a, a, a crisis, I think, but we've had other crises. We had a civil war after all, uh, and we've had bad times. I mean, we had a bad time around nineteen, about a hundred years ago, with the you know the the immigrants coming in. They were about the same percentages today. Foreign-born people, 13%, 14 percent of the population in nineteen hundred was, was foreign-born, uh, and it made for serious problems. I mean, I remember D- John Vespasas, the great novelist, said in, in light of the Sacco Vanzetti uh, case, uh, all right, then, we are two nations, meaning the, there's the native-born, and then there's the foreign-born, and they'll never come together. But we know they did come together over the next 60 years. There was intermarriage and uh, an assimilation, and the, the the Italian Americans that he was talking about, re- representing these foreign born, have a, have been integrated into the society, and, and I think the same thing will happen with uh, Hispanics. And I think Blacks are, are 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 now being integrated. This is the, 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 the real uh, issue that people are frightened by, but actually this is politics. Up to 1960s, blacks weren't participating in the civic life of America. They were kept out, and so for the last half century, they've become major participants. And so I think we're 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 going through a tough time, but no tougher than we had in the past.
1: And, and if I could just um, elaborate on one other aspect of that uh, wonderful quote that um, Andy uh, plucked from uh, your opening. Uh, pages. Uh, uh, it's not just the founders in general um, that Americans, I think, maybe distinctively um, look to even today and, and talk about and, and think about. Um, but uh, and, and, and these central documents, in, including, of course, the Declaration of Independence, but the Constitution itself, as a as a document, as a text, um, is. Um, held sacred in uh, America, and a lot of American culture. People don't read it. They actually don't, many of them uh, don't know what it actually says, but, but I think culturally it carries a, a weight that many other co- uh, constitutions and many other societies does not um um, I think that's one of the things that you also um, were, uh, were highlighting above and beyond our, um, our focus on, on certain founding figures. And, and by founding, of course, we're meaning the, the revolution in uh, the 1770s um, and, and, and 80s and not the 1620s as uh, the first founding, as you uh, alluded to. Um, but my view is, um, as a law person, um, our legal culture is distinctively more textualist and originalist than many other constitutional cultures. Uh, Britain doesn't have a a written constitution. Canada is not remotely originalist um, in its um, um, uh, constitutional uh, jurisprudence to the extent, you know, much of America is. And I believe part of that, not all of it, but part of it is that um, uh, this year, 1787-88, um, was truly extraordinary. I call it the, the Big Bang, the hinge of human history, because it was such an extraordinary thing to put the, th- uh, the document, um, this proposal, this mere proposal, um, to a vote up and down an entire continent. The world had never seen anything like that before, even though there had been you know, some smaller dress rehearsals of that, let's say, in Massachusetts and, and New Hampshire, as, as you pointed out, actually, you know, as early as your, your first book, your doctoral dissertation, the uh, creation of the American Republic, but 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 that idea of putting the thing to a vote up and down a continent um, created um, a tremendous energy um, and pride and, and and a sense of um, look here's what we've done in the history of the world that no one has done before.
2: Right? No, no. The uh, the whole process of how, how to make a, a constitution, how how to make a fundamental law fundamental. Was, was worked out by, by Americans, and it didn't come to them easily. They had to struggle with this. They fumbled and so on. So, no, you're quite right that uh, that ratification process, well, it was followed 10 years later by the French, uh, and it's been followed by other places, but of course, there have been written constitutions by the dozens, and hundreds, if you will, over the last 200 years, following our example, but they don't all succeed. So, obviously. Uh, there's something more than just a written constitution that that holds a society together. You, there are other elements that need to be uh, be part of the package, or, or else uh, 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 there wouldn't be so many failures of of the written constitutions that have followed from the American example.
1: And and uh, and, and I emphasize two in particular, um, which is this extraordinary ratification process. I don't really think. Not, even the French did a kind of popular ratification of the sort that we did. So that really does stri- uh, uh, um, uh, stand out for me. And, and I do also think, well, I hope we'll talk about it before we get to the end, uh, the consolidating effect of being able to pick George Washington unanimously as the first president and then re-elect him unanimously. And, and 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 his never really being repudiated is actually then um, retiring at the end. Um, um, those were really important um, um, additional elements that 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 that, that make the American constitutional founding um, such a, a, a an extraordinary indeed um, unique phenomenon in world history.
2: Yes, no, no, I, I agree completely with uh, the the. Uh... The convention gained uh, authority because Washington was present. He needed to be dragged there. He was reluctant to, to, to come, but, uh, but his first presidency it was just crucial because they made the president uh, as strong as it was, and of course the term president was very shrewdly chosen. Normally it would have been governor, but president implied a presiding officer, which is what they had in under the convention, the Congress of the Convention, which was a is a very weak office. Uh, but to to apply the term uh, to the executive of this new government was to call him a president was very shrewd because it it played down just how powerful he was. Of course, it's very vague. Article two. Uh, is is, um, very vague in what what the powers of that president are. And now it's being debated, and there's a a bill being concocted by the Democrats to uh, uh, restore our democracy bill that's going to reduce some of the powers of the presidency that were exercised by President Trump. So it's obviously the president was a very crucial figure, and the fact that it was Washington I think uh, made all the difference. Uh, the, the government really might not have survived those first 2-3 years without uh, uh without Washington being in office. If it'd been anyone else, I think it we might have fallen apart over the uh over the uh issues that arose.
0: And that's not uh you know a major thrust I think uh in, in your book, although you know it has been in in other books. Um and, uh, but one thing that I was struck by in your book was the, was kind of the logical sequence of things that there was a sense that, um, you know, that, that B followed a, uh, you know, and here's why. And in that sense, uh, it had a, a the feel of a book written by someone who had spent their career studying these things that had come to grip with grips with all these questions. Um, so that brings me to kind of the next, uh, Major topic I wanted to cover, which is sort of the arc of your your scholarly career. You know, in our in our podcast, we've been discussing sort of the history of how you write a book or the history of of one's you know career. Well, what you know, what's sort of been the arc of your your his, your career as a as, as an historian?
2: Well, as I after I finished that first book, uh, the creation of I began studying how did this democracy. Arise, and and really, what what I spent the rest of my uh, right up to the present is trying to study how did how do we become a democratic society, uh, especially in light of the fact that the Constitution, <clears throat> as I understood it, was designed to, uh, to curb democracy, uh, the democracy that um, that arose in the state legislatures uh, in the 1780s. That that's was Madison's obsession, and he was, I think, the crucial figure in, calling the, uh, uh, getting the convention together and, and, and writing the Virginia Plan, which became the model, for the for the Constitution. Uh, so I think my whole career has been spent with that, and the the books have revealed that. Uh, the the final one, or the the, lar- the large book that I wrote for the Oxford History of the United States on the early Republic. Is a is is a revelation. I think of of what democracy turned out to be, and it occurred in the north essentially. Uh, when you have someone like Simon Snyder, who is uh, totally uneducated and totally different from any of the founders, elected governor of Pennsylvania in eighteen o eight, then you've got uh, a a social revolution. That had not been anticipated by anybody a few decades earlier. Uh, that, to me, is, is what happened. And, and it's been obscured from view because we focus on the federal level, and the federal level was dominated by Southerners who are aristocrats, uh, slaveholding aristocrats, and they hide, so to speak, uh, they obscure the social revolution that took place in the North. And So finally, you—you, I guess the greatest revolution—revelation for us is when Abraham Lincoln is elected president. He's a man who had no college education whatsoever, but he turned out to be a genius, a, a political genius. He had the instincts of of a, of a political genius, and and that is what obsessed the world. I mean, there's a statue of Lincoln. Uh, in, 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 right outside the Parliament in London. I mean, it's just incredible the kind of what what happened in our, our society that that impressed the world. Um, well, we're still impressing the world, but somewhat in different ways. But uh, it, it's the emergence of democracy that I was interested in, and I think we had it. Uh, we had it early, and the founders were not liked, as I say. Uh, Martin Van Buren, who is the first real politician who becomes president, you know, he never did anything successful. I mean, he never made a great speech, he never won a great battle, but he was an astute politician. Organized the most successful political party in American history uh, in New York. But he says in the the New York Constitutional Convention in 1820, "Hey, forget about those founders. They were aristocrats. We're Democrats." Uh, and that's the attitude people had, that the founders didn't have anything to say to them because the society is really very contrary to what the founders stood for and what they were like. Uh, they, they were not a re- Democrats. Um, but, but Martin Van Buren was, and so was Simon Snyder. And, and those people come to dominate uh, the society in the antebellum period in the northern states. Uh, now that changes because society becomes more structured in the post-Civil War period, and we go through different stages of, of development. But I think the Antebellum period is is fascinating for that reason: the emergence of democracy, climaxing, revealing by the by in the Jack it's revealed clearly in the Jacksonian period when they argued that anyone. Anyone at all, without education, without any talent at all, can be, hold any office in, 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 in government. Uh, that's really turning things completely upside
1: down. Uh, Gordon, if I could just jump in on that, um, uh, since um, Andy has been inviting you really to to talk about the the history of a, an historian, namely you, you, you your, your your story as, as an historian um, um, unfolding, um, and we we're talking about some of the, the, the books that uh, uh, you've written uh, along the way. Um, so uh, I'm so glad you mentioned Empire of Liberty because uh, I, I, you've written many of my favorite books, but, but that's one of them, and I wanted to tell our audience a little bit about what makes some of your books as history books different from each other. So this this last one, the new one, is a short synoptic. It's um, a synthesis and distillation. I think is 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 your word of, of of many of your themes. It it takes the story forward. You have amazing stuff at the end about um, um, banks um, and, and and corporations um, in in your uh, uh, in, in a new in your now home state of of, of Rhode Island. So so um but. Here's how I would um, uh, describe the arc of your career, and I want you to, you know, react to this. And is this a kind of a a faithful um, description of the arc, or um, am I getting it completely wrong? So your, 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 and your dissertation is one kind of history book. It's very much an intellectual history. Um, and it's about um, uh, um, politics, but also a society and culture, so social, cultural, um, and political, but it's very much an intellectual history in which you're talking about um, ideas and, 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 and pronouncements and statements of, 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 of different folks, especially people who are actually thinking um, and, and, uh, about um, deep issues. Um, and it's, it's a brilliant dis- It's a dissertation that wins, you know, the, the Bancroft Prize, the, uh, the, the highest historic uh, professional prize in the discipline. That's one kind of book. And I think Radicalism, the American Revolution, another great uh, uh, book of yours, is somewhat in that tradition also in that it's an intellectual, cultural, um, uh, po- po- um, a political um, story. But what I especially love about Empire of Liberty, which is a little bit different, is it's more. It has all of those themes: political, social, cultural, religious. All of those things. It's top down and, but it's also bottom up. It's more narrative history, blending um, uh, uh, in which the, the other, in, the intellectual um, um, and, and social and cultural threads are blended in. But there's more storytelling in it. Um, more character development. Um, more just sort of standard um, narrative, and. Um, um, I mean, it's a big book, like Creation is a big book, um, but it also, what I particularly liked about it is it carried the story um, much further forward in time, not quite maybe the Martin Van Buren, but but past you know even the you know, past the the Declaration, past the Constitution, past the Bill of Rights, past the Washington um, and and even Jefferson presidencies, sort of into you know this um, uh, emerging age of of, of Jackson um, uh, by the end. Um, so. That's, um, I think, an underappreciated um, wood book. I mean, lots, it's gotten lots of surprise and all the rest, but it's really one of my favorites because it blends all these sorts of history. And I want to put in a plug for one other book, um, which is um, a book of essays that you wrote on the purpose of the past, um, um, which I, I think that's the one that collects a bunch of book reviews that you've written of other historians' works and, 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 Talking about different ways of doing history. Well, there's um, narrative history. There's um, a military history. Um, there's economic history that's all about kind of big data and t- that tries to be scientific in a certain way. Um, there's um, a political history of a certain sort. Um, so, so anyway, have I have I gotten you your the arc of of, of your books uh, basically right? And what am I missing? No,
2: I, I. That's fine. I, I. 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 I agree with you. I think that's how. Uh, look. I. I think the, the historical profession gets gets things wrong sometimes because you write about ideas. You. You. They then conclude that you think ideas are the only thing that drives a revolution. And of course, I don't think that's true at all. It just happened to be more interesting to write about in some cases than writing about the society. There's no doubt that. Uh, that the social changes are what drive uh, intellectual changes and cultural changes. It's the society that you have to look at. Now, the fact that I don't spend a lot of time in the society doesn't mean that I'm not interested in it. It's just that it's not as interesting to me to write about, but I don't mean to to uh, to suggest that social changes aren't crucial. They are fundamental. They are what drive transformations. And it's the social changes in the North that that create the ideas of, say, the Jacksonian period, where they begin to argue that anyone at all, at all, without any educational credentials, can be um, can hold office. Uh, It's the social base to that. So uh, that that is not always perceived by the academics because they get fighting whether the American Revolution was caused by ideas or was it caused by social conflict. Of course, it's caused by both. We don't do anything without making sense of it in our ideas. We we have to give meaning to everything we do. And I've written about this, trying to explain that uh, you don't want to separate our intellectual world from our social world. We do it just for purposes of simplicity, perhaps, or or writing, but we certainly don't want to ever think that we we act without giving meaning to what we do. I, we we give meaning to everything we do. Even a, a wink has carries meaning for many people. So uh, that that division is a false one, but it's much much supported by the academic world uh, i think unfortunately
1: yeah i've read a couple of your uh, um very forceful statements um uh, and and maybe um you know in the idea of america and purpose of the past where you you basically say oh you're not arguing that um ideas are causes that they they're the engine that drive everything you actually are a a Humean in um who thinks that um, uh, reason is often in the service of, of of passions and and other things but 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 there are ideas, and you need to understand why people say what they do and think what they do, because that's an important part of the historical story. So, yeah. so um, I, I that's all true, and you're, you're not just about you know um, uh, pure ideas or just politics distinct from culture, um, society, and religion. That's all true. But then the other thing, though, that I was saying about um, Empire of Liberty that I really liked, in addition to it, it's brought and it, it carries the story for, uh, forward in time toward Lincoln toward Van Buren. Toward um, Jackson, you know, and you've alluded to you know all of them uh, already today, is um, that Empire more than the other books features Gordon Wood as um, a, a storyteller, and there's more of that in um, uh, Power uh, and Liberty. There's some in a uh, little book that you wrote about the American Revolution. The um, um, uh, Creation of the American Republic doesn't quite you know um, give a certain kind of reader. The, the, the storytelling that you have also, for example, in your, in your Ben Franklin book and some of your other books. So I thought Empire pulled it all together, the, the storytelling, the narrative um, historian, as well as the, the intellectual, cultural, religious, um, um, a, a political um, analyst and observer.
2: Well, that was the gist of what the Oxford History of the United States, which was begun by Richard Hofstadter and C. Van Woodward in the 1950s, and it's still going on. They still haven't completed uh, the uh, Oxford History of the United States. There's still some gaps left, but that's over what seventy years now. They've been working on that. It was in emulation of the Oxford History of England, where they usually had a hundred years to work with. They have a much longer history. We were all given about twenty-five uh, years, and and the design, as as Woodward and 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 Hossdatter worked it out. In the fifties was to write a narrative history, uh, and and yet at the same time the analytic, the combination of it, of narrative and analysis is not easy to do because you have to uh, you have to stop the story so to speak and and analyze things, uh, which can sometimes uh, slow down the narrative. So uh, it's a an unusual combination, but I think that's what at least I tried to do, and I think uh, several of the other. Um, successful books in the in the history of the United States, in the Oxford History of the United States, have, have been very good
1: mixtures of both analysis and and narrative. I think truthfully, that the and and, and, and just one the one last. Uh, tr- um, you're very modest, um, Gordon. Because um, uh, uh, truthfully, um, I think you you did it better than some of the other books in, in the series, like M- Middlekoff's book, um, The Glorious Cause is basically a, a military history but it, it misses in my view a lot of, about the other elements of of of, of that period um, and yes and-
2: yes I, I would agree in fact I said that in a review I, he didn't uh, he didn't really uh, deal adequately with the uh, coming of the Constitution he, he was but he got caught up in the military and he, he enjoyed it writing about it and and I think it it, it it took up most of his pages and so he had very little space left. Uh Woody Holton has written a, a, another book that's coming out in a month or two uh on the revolution and he too spends an inordinate amount of time uh with with the war uh and and suddenly the the constitution is, is sort of passed off as in a, in a half a chapter. Um when he's got it's a huge book, too, it's six hundred, almost 600 pages long. Um, So this is a problem if you're writing... Military history lends itself to narrative, but uh, if that's all you think the revolution was about, well, then you've made a terrible mistake, because the revolution is not just the Revolutionary War, but it was a real revolution. That is to say, it involves social changes and cultural changes, and political changes of, of an immensely important sort.
0: I think a, a book uh, that does military history but also um, shuffles back and forth uh, in that manner is Battle Cry of Freedom, is a book that does that in an interesting way.
2: Right, right. Now, McPherson's book, on, yes. which is in the same Oxford history series, is is one of the successful ones, I, I believe. Now, and, yeah. and of course, the Civil, Civil War is... a, a it's a, it's a great event to, to but, write
1: about. But just to put you know, a final uh, uh, point on it, um, there are different ways of doing history, um, and you write about many of these different ways in your book reviews as you're engaging historians who have um, uh, different um, philosophies of, of, of history writing. And I just wanted to, since Andy is, uh, t- um, invited you to talk about the general arc of your career and, and the oeuvre as a, as a whole – just wanted to make sure our readers understand that there are different kinds of books that you've written, um, and um, some are review books of other historians, like The Purpose of the Past. Some are, 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 are character sketches, like revolutionary characters, or some are more biographical, uh, The Americanization of of, of Benjamin um, Franklin, and, and those are actually, that one is more like a kind of a David McCullough, Ron Chernow-like book, in that it's a um, It's a narrative history of of a person. Some are more pure intellectual history uh, projects, even though they're also cultural and and social, like Creation of the American Republic. Um, But what I thought was distinctive and extraordinary, really, about Empire of Liberty is that it was all of the above. It blended. Biography, um, in your phrase, um, narrative and analysis, um, intellectual, political, social, cultural, even um, uh, d- diplomatic, and, and the religious stuff was not um, uh, downplayed. Um, and 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 you're right; it's that's a, it's a hard thing to do. One book that weaves together those different kinds of history, telling a story and then stopping every so often to analyze it or to step back and and, and identify a big picture, which. I like I like him, but David McCullough wouldn't do um, because that's not his, you know, his, his, his um, a niche, um, uh, his comparative advantage. Um, truthfully, Gordon, it's what I tried to do in uh, the words that made us is have both narrative and analysis, and and I felt myself sometimes. Yes, I have to stop my story just a little bit to take a step back and and show the reader a bigger picture, um, and then back to the story. Yes. Yes. And you no, were my I, model. I, oh,
2: well, thank you. No, you, you, you've done a, it's a mammoth job you've done. Well, we have some disagreements over the uh, origins of the Constitution, which I I was uh, thinking about because you sent me some uh, comments uh, recently uh, uh, isolating those those issues. Uh, is Madison the, the father of the Constitution? Uh, I happen to think he is. Uh, I mean, without uh, without the Virginians, there would have been no uh, no convention. And without uh, Madison, there would have been no Virginia Plan. plan. Uh, and and he he uh, he did it all pretty much. He consulted with the Randolph, the Edmund Randolph, who was younger, and and uh, but he was the governor of the state, and that's why he introduces the Virginia Plan. But it's Madison's baby, and and. Uh, there's an interesting. You you, you you think Washington was crucial. I think his his presence is crucial, but he wasn't participating in the structure of the government. He he. In fact, he writes Madison in April, I think, of 1787, just a month before the convention is going to meet, and he says, "Well, what, what what do you think? What have you done with the the executive?" Naturally, that's something that Washington's interested in because I you know, <laughs> he's not falsely modest. He knows that there's going to be. Uh, an executive that he'll probably be it. Uh, and Madison says, I haven't given it any thought. I just haven't thought about that. In fact, uh, you know, the, the, the executive really, uh, evolves quite strangely during the convention because until late in the, in the, uh, in, in the meeting, um, the, the, the president does not appoint the, um, diplomats he does not appoint any of the judges all of these will be appointed by the senate by itself but then in the aftermath of the uh connecticut compromise where which madison sees not as a compromise but as a defeat because he does not like the states to be back into play and having any influence over the over this new government that he's trying to create uh he is in despair that now the Senate is going to be elected by the state legislatures, two senators elected from each state equality. He wanted proportional representation, and he didn't want any semblance of the states coming into, the, into this government. Well, now the states are once more in play and in the Senate, so he, there's a real feeling of taking some of this power away from the Senate so that they no longer can appoint the diplomats and the judges by themselves. They... That's now given to the president, and 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 with the Senate playing the advice and consent role, so uh, it's a really interesting see that the the executive was not as powerful at the outset as uh, as he as he later became, uh, the as, as the executive office later became. I think that's fascinating. Madison paid very little attention to it. They, there's some suggestion. I think I think Edmund Randolph thought there might be three executives three have a three president three people playing the role of an executive well that got shot down pretty quickly because there'd be no responsibility at that point but it is interesting to see how the executive evolves during the convention debates
0: but aren't you making Akio's argument for him by, by doing that I mean is you know does it really matter that Madison had these uh, these preferences going in? If that's not what came oh, out? Oh no,
2: I have no doubt that each for each person, as the as the, the Virginia plan emerges, each person in the convention looks and sees, well, how is this going to affect my state or me or whatever? And certainly, Washington had a vested interest in the executive, and and comes out, and the executive comes out with a vague, it's, as I say, it's very vague article two on the executive power. All he has is, is named as the executive, and he's commander in chief. And those two things—that's all we know. Whereas the Congress is given a whole list of things it can do. Uh, so
1: I, I think I would—I think I would offer a slightly different take on that. Um, but here's how it connects to what we said before. Um, almost everyone else um, who uh, writes about the Constitution does it in—and um, the drafting of it does it in a kind of narrative way, a chronological way, um uh, walking the reader through the Philadelphia Convention and the the, the the different um um votes and the twists and turns um uh, uh, throughout the course of that summer. Um, and, and that's a especially a, a congenial way to write the thing because Farand's uh, records uh, composed largely of Madison's notes make it very easy to see day by day, week by week, vote by vote, um, how um, the convention unfolds. And, and that's kind of classic narrative history of a certain sort, um, just chronological storytelling, not just, but... but um, um, Mine actually, my chapter on this is very different. And I think it's the only one really that does um, it this way. It's a chapter five of, of the new book. And I say, don't actually look at the thing week by week, blow by blow, vote by vote, look at the final product and do it analytically rather narratively. What's the biggest difference between this constitution and the state constitutions that Gordon Wood um, and Willie Paul Adams have, have written about that are already in place, be- the, the beginning in the revolutionary state constitutions beginning in 76. The biggest difference is a massively powerful executive. So there are the, the written constitutions, states have that. Bicameral legislatures, most states have that. Um, um, they um, put the thing to a vote, they're going to put the thing to a vote, but actually Massachusetts and um, New Hampshire had, had, had pioneered um, that protocol um, um there, there's a, a strongly independent judiciary, but they're mix matching mixing and matching some of the best features of judicial independence in the best state constitutions. They're putting them all together. The big difference, I argue analytically, is there's no state that has anything like the uh, the, the powerful executive. So it's it's a four-year term. it's independently elected. it's infinitely, Renewable. Um, it um, is not merely the commander in chief of, of, of a continental uh, um, army and navy. He uniquely has a veto pen. Only Massachusetts governor has his own veto pen. He has an, a uniquely powerful pardon pen. You add all of those things together. Um, that's a that's a, 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 a president they call, yes it's very clever you're absolutely right to call him a presider um, but far more powerful than any governor and who obviously wants that Washington wants that for himself the narrative history misses all of this because Washington is the strong silent type who sits up there gets everything he wants without even having to say much at Philadelphia and five of the people at Philadelphia convention in five different states are his aides de camp um, Alexander Hamilton from New York and Pinckney from South Carolina and Randolph from Virginia and McHenry and Mifflin from um, Maryland and and Pennsylvania. So my claim is analytically, he actually emerges uh, uh, as um, uh, that the Constitution is in his image, not Madison's who hadn't really thought about executive power. And you'll miss that if you tell the standard story narratively, because Washington doesn't say very much, you'll only see it when you actually look at the thing as a whole and compare it to state constitutions.
2: No, I think you're quite right in that, uh, that they would never have made the presidency so strong if they weren't expecting Washington to hold the office. They say that. Many of the, the, the delegates said that. Uh, I think that's yeah that's no doubt true, uh, but that just testifies to what? What drives that is the fear of democracy in the states. They're willing to make such a, a strong federal government, together with a strong president and a, uh, and a, and a court, a Supreme Court, uh, because they are so frightened of democracy in the states. That's the drive. I, I agree
1: with that, but I would add one other thing that I think. The historians of, let's say, the late 1800s tend to, tended to emphasize more than um, do you, um, which is they're also afraid, Washington is afraid, of the, the major European monarchs that um, could conceivably come back for round two. Um, uh, no, Britain, no, they, they, they France, and have Spain. they foreign
2: policy. As far as foreign policy concerns, uh, the question is whether they could have been handled by amending uh, the articles or not. But right. they are concerned right. about the English to the north, who right. are uh, playing with uh, Indians, uh, trying to bring Vermont into Canada. Exactly. Uh, and the south, in the southwest, you have the Spanish uh, claiming uh, what territory all the way, including the present states of Alabama and Mississippi, as uh, Spanish. Uh, Territories, so there is a, there are foreign policy issues definitely that are in play and uh, the question is you know who, whether you needed to have a federal constitution like the one we have uh, to, to, to deal with those but it race exactly
1: up. And, 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 and so I, I'm i halfway between, let's say, Gordon, your view, um, I bring in more, in the modern era, I would say the historian who's emphasized this at least as much as maybe anyone else, um, uh, initially Frederick Marx with independence on trial, and, and, and then later these people like M. Edling, revolution in favor of government. It's what you call the fiscal military state that I tend to just emphasize a bit. More than than you do um, uh, in, in in my narrative, so I think you're absolutely right about Madison and states and and the importance of of the uh, um, the dis the, the dismay um, in, in um, the republicanism at the state level because the American Revolution was um, had such grand utopian ideological um, hopes for um, uh, just a, a new way of of living and and there was a lot of disappointment in um, the first round of state. Uh, constitutions. I get all of that. I think you're right about all of that. But I tend to emphasize um, alongside that, um, and 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 uh, uh, the, the, the 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 national security, foreign policy stuff. It's interesting looking even at something like Shay's Rebellion. Is that only about um, um, uh, a democratic agitation from below and anxiety of the elites about that? Or is it also about oh um, France? Uh, I mean, excuse me, uh, uh, Britain and 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 Canada are maybe manipulating um, uh, uh, this um, uh, to to their interests and 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 intervening in Vermont and other places, and that's going to be uh, a foreign policy uh, problem as well.
2: well no, I, I agree. that All these issues uh, c- come into place, particularly as the convention develops, or or in the aftermath of the convention. Uh, but the question then is, why, why do they call the convention? Why is the Virginia plan? Who writes it? And what is he thinking? What is he's, and we're talking about James Madison. He wrote that thing pretty much by himself, consulting with Randolph. He obviously was not consulting with Washington because Washington writes him in April saying, well, what do you got in this thing you're doing? He knows he's doing something. He knows Washington knows Madison's drafting some kind of a plan. But he says, "Well, what are you doing with the executive?" And Madison replies, "I haven't even thought about it. That's not that was not on his agenda. Uh, so, but it does become. It just can't. You can't create a new government and with a, an executive without having Washington's the, the 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 prospect of Washington becoming that president. That is on everyone's mind." And there's no doubt in his mind as well that he is going to be the first president. He hasn't any doubt about that. And I think it made people relax. Otherwise, uh, as Edmund Randolph says, when the first proposal is made was of, of a single individual, he says, this is the fetus of monarchy. And it's, uh, they're scared of creating a, a new monarch, an elected monarch, but a monarch nonetheless. And, and it's only Washington's presence that, that knowing that he would be the president that that uh, appeases them and, and makes them accept that that extraordinarily strong office.
0: So a couple of things on that. It sounds like, you know, to some degree, you know, if you say, well, Madison's the father of the Constitution, Akil says Washington's the father. To me, it sounds like you're saying that Madison is the father of the convention, of the Constitutional Convention,
2: uh, uh, the, and, uh, the, uh, and the Annapolis well, uh,
0: Convention, for sure. and. And that Aquila is saying yes, but in terms of what actually comes out the other end, you know, it's 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 Washington, and you're uh, agreeing with that to some degree. And I think one other yes. point that was mentioned um, about Washington, you know, earlier, you said that uh, that Article Two is somewhat vague and and has to be fleshed out. And we've talked about this before that the consolidation of the of the of the Constitution is left. To Washington, to some degree, so it's not just that they trust him to not be a monarch and that he'll step down eventually, and so forth, but that they also trust him to flesh out the details that are left vague, as you pointed out. So it becomes Washington's yeah. constitution after the the convention, not just you know as the convention is going on.
2: Uh, that, that's what I would say. I would agree. It becomes his constitution as uh, after the after uh, as, as he takes office then he is in a position to shape it, and he knows that. He's quite aware that he's setting precedents. Uh, so I, obviously the Constitution, once it's released and, and used, it's developed through practice and conventions and so on. We have a, well, Akil knows this. He's written a book on the unwritten Constitution. The written Constitution is so short, <laughs> so brief, that we could never it could never account for all of the things we have to do. So it's been fleshed out and filled in. So we have as much of an unwritten constitution as the British do. And they, so the, the distinction between the two countries is not as great because they have some written documents. You know, they have Magna Carta they keep appealing to. They have a Bill of Rights. They have a lot of things written down. Habeas corpus act and so on. But they have also conventions, and we do too. Conventions, practices, habits, and without those, no written constitution uh, will ever,
1: will ever succeed. Here's here's an example just ripped from the headlines. Um, At a certain point, America will have to decide um, uh, whether to recognize the Taliban regime. Um, And uh, who within the U.S. government will make that determination about recognition? And the answer is it's going to be um, the president, Joe Biden. And when you read the text of the constitution... It doesn't say that clearly at all, but Washington, um, in his first um, term of of office, unilaterally made the decision to recognize the French revolutionaries as the uh, the legitimate government of France, the successor of, of, of King Louis. Um, And that gloss applied by Washington and that was ultimately accepted by the other branches and the American people is now a really fixed part of our Constitution every bit as much As if it were in the text. And that's why, um, for example, um, um, and Washington sent secret envoys to um, the Court of St. James, uh, Governor Morris, which is why Nixon can send Kissinger to China and Jimmy Carter can unilaterally decide he's going to break a treaty with um, Taiwan and recognize the People's Republic. Of, of China, so that's a good. Exa- and today, that's the Taliban, um, or you right, know, well, a but, president making secret um, uh, deals with the Australians or something, and all right, of right. that is at least as much the unwritten gloss of George Washington.
2: But if the uh, but Akhil, if the uh, provision that stayed in up for about seven or eight weeks, it stayed in the Constitution that that the Senate would have sole
1: power to appoint diplomats, everything would have been different. It's you're the right. diplomatic appointment. And my hunch is that you, um, you're you absolutely right. That gets pulled out in part because Madison sours on the Senate because it's not going to be right. proportionally representative, which was one, one of the many things that he lost on. Because I could basically say he had all these grand plans, but he lost on a bunch of them, a proportionally represented Senate, um, a council of revision, um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, taxation of, of, of exports um, um, a, a different kind of, of veto system um, um, a, con- a congressional well, negative
2: I, state I think laws. He, re- he lost. I mean, the, the South lost on the exports, but I don't think that was Madison's hang-up. He, he, he only had two things he really was upset about. He wanted a veto uh, given to the Congress over all state laws. It's so impractical you can't imagine that. But it stayed in the, the working documents for so long. I can't imagine why people, why the heads prevailed and said, that's just so impractical. Can you imagine if it stayed in?
1: all And, the and, and my thought is the wise, their heads prevailed in part because they looked at the winks and nods of George Washington. He doesn't say anything, but it just like well, it, it yeah. turns out that you know that he, uh, the president ends up with all of all this this power at the at the at the end of the thing. Um uh, so uh, uh, uh but and and then he he puts these um, uh, practices in, into place; these these important precedents you know that, that part that. of our unwritten You're right,
2: absolutely right about the about the the Washington as president and the precedents he set, very very crucial. Uh, and, and Jefferson follows them. Uh, Adams, uh, you know, he's he doesn't have a long, time, but it's important that that Jefferson stayed uh, stayed uh, and, and didn't really violate uh, anything that Washington had done because he he was not very much opposed to the washington type constitution. Yes. In fact, he's opposed to what Madison. If he'd been it's just a blessing that Jefferson wasn't present in the convention. <laughs> cuz it would have been a very different constitution cuz he had a lot of clout and he certainly had clout with Madison. And it would have been a very different uh, constitution. I think
0: uh, So he we
2: wanted to, he, <laughs>
0: Sorry, so, so oh, yeah, we're, sorry. We're, uh, we're talking about this area where it seemed like there was uh, disagreement, but perhaps there is more agreement than we thought. Um,
1: because I am following, uh, uh, because he's a mentor, because I actually, even if we disagree about this or that, I think we fundamentally understand the project very similarly about what historians are, are supposed to do and what counts as evidence and, and what are the important and interesting questions and all the rest, and truthfully, since he mentioned Woody Holton, um, uh, and and we could talk about Jill Lepore and Hannah Nicole Jones and the 1619 Project, and I hope we do, um, I think some of those folks aren't even playing the same game that Gordon and I are trying to play. And by calling it a game, I don't mean to trivialize it. I mean to say there are rules, and, and I think Gordon and I pretty much have the same um, uh, understanding of, of the rules that um, we're supposed to be playing by.
0: Well, and I think that I, I wanted to, to discuss that next, actually. It's what I was getting at here, um, which is that um, I think you know, uh, Gordon has uh, put his name um, to various uh, letters and, you know, and, and statements regarding uh, things that came up in connection with the 1619 Project specifically, um, and it's taken a lot of heat for it. Um, but I think that you, Akil, are uh, in agreement with, with, with much of this. Um, 100%. So perhaps we might, uh, you know, have a little bit of a, of a history of it. Um, uh, Gordon, you, you wrote a – you were part of a letter um, that was written to the New York Times um, in uh, 2019, actually. Um, boy, it's been going on for a while. Um, regarding right. some statements in the 1619 project, uh, specifically having to do with Dunmore's Proclamation and so forth, um, would you like to recount that uh, for us? Well,
2: and, look, I you know my feeling now is that this is a moment in our um, in our history that will eventually pass, and the feelings are so high uh, as a young. A professor at Princeton in an article in Harper's Magazine pointed out uh, the people involved, Hannah Jones and, and other Black intellectuals, are now uh, no longer on the edges of our culture. They're really at the core, at the center. They're winning the prizes. They're they're being published by the best journals. Uh, they're they're being listened to by politicians. This is a moment of, I guess, I guess you'd call it the grand atonement for slavery. And I think um, we academics who have protested this, well, in the long run, this will out, I think, truth will out. But right now, there's such a strong feeling for social justice that it trumps everything. It it really overwhelms uh, the, the culture. And it's probably... Probably foolish or at least futile to keep protesting against it. It's for the historical record, as I see it, so that when maybe long after I'm dead, uh, people will go back and say, well, there were some people who said, yeah, this was excessive. But I understand what's happening, and I think we need to just have patience. Uh, it's not Hannah Jones' fault, because there were lots of historians over the last 25 years who've been saying similar things, and that's what she's drawing on. She's a journalist. She's not a historian. And you can't blame her, because there are historians saying similar things. Um, It's it's a a moment in our history, and and we'll just have to go through it is the way I put it. Um, and I wanted to get the record straight out there and, and I think others who joined us felt the same way, but we don't expect to change people's minds. There are lots of people out there who agree with us. They're intimidated. Uh, you can, you can see that in, in a host of host of ways. And, and now some of that intimidation is, is, uh, coming to the, you know, Ann Applebaum had a piece in in uh, the Atlantic that's pointing out the new Puritanism and so on. So there's a beginning to get some pushback, but I think it'll pass. I think it's I think it's futile to keep talking about how how wrong they are because we know they're wrong, and and uh, they'll they've already made some adjustments without ever apologizing to us uh, who wrote that letter. They went from. Uh, the, the colonists believed that slavery was about to be uh, abolished. Uh, to some colonists, I mean, that's a big transformation from the colonists to some. Uh, and and yet, um, uh, the editor of the New York magazine, Times magazine never never apologized to us for that 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 change.
1: But, Bait and switch, yes yeah so. <laughs> it was.
2: But I think we have to realize we're in a very, very um, crucial moment in our history and and it's a moment of atonement. Uh, so the best way I can describe it. And, and so it, 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 we're not getting any support uh, what you'd expect from the bulk of the historical profession. Even though they agree with us, they won't speak out because there's a cult- culture now of, of a feeling that, well, we got to let it. We're just going to let this moment pass. So I I think that's – I'm optimistic about the future, but it's not something that's going to happen in my lifetime.
1: And, and Gordon, just on on that, um, I jumped into this, uh, and and I posted some things on this before I had read – the initial um, letter that uh, you co-wrote with Sean Wilentz and, and Jim Oaks and others. And obviously before the m- more recent letter um, joined by Jack Raycove and Joe Ellison and, and Sean Wilentz and, and, and others. Um, and um, uh, I jumped in on this and our audience can see it on uh, um, um, the website that Andy created for me at These are a set of extra notes to um my my recent book um the words that made us uh, and I, I have a little discussion of dunmore's proclamation and an end note and then much more on on, on the website um and i critique not hannah nicole jones because i wasn't focused on her um i critiqued actually jill lapore who said something it was a very um um uh, uh, well-recognized um uh, uh uh, historian at at um, at Harvard um, um, in a book that she wrote called These Truths and uh, and 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 I think when I and when I see the entirety of Woody Holton's um, evidence, I think I'm going to critique that too. I, I read a recent uh, his recent uh, piece in the Washington Post on this, but I have felt a little bit more empowered to do so, honestly, Gordon, because I'm not white. Um, I'm not black either. Um, but in the same way that Tocqueville, as an outsider, you know was able to see and say certain things, I, I felt truthfully a little bit of, of, uh, uh, of, of space um, as someone who's neither white nor black, whose family didn't come in chains and didn't come to America, uh, whose ancestors also didn't come with bullwhips um, to, to kind of weigh in on that. But you mentioned the Applebaum piece I'm uh, quoted uh, um, at the, toward the very end. uh, Of that piece. Um, But just for the record, because we are making a historical record here, I'm with you. I think you guys are absolutely right about this. I'm appreciative that you are trying to set the historical record straight because you guys have taken a lot of hits for this. Um, And so I just want to thank you and salute you because what you're standing up for is um, the standards of of the discipline of, of truth and accuracy. And truthfully, it's, it's wrong to think that the British were great on this. They, they, they weren't proposing abolition. Um, they were all in on slavery in, 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 in the West Indies. Um, they they um, were actually threatening to um, imprison any black um, uh, um, American uh, rebel in arms who got, who got captured, the same way the Southerners the Confederates would do um, in, in, in the Civil War. Um, so it's not just that America is being dumped on in a certain way, and the, the the potential of the American Revolution at its best, especially in the North, was being ignored. The the abolitionist tendencies in the North. It's not just that, and seeing America as just one thing rather than different things, different in the North, different in the Middle, different in the South, but it's also actually presenting the Brits in a in a very misleading um, light, as if they're the the great heroes of the story, and that's not quite true and and this is personal for me because my parents were still alive today grew up in um, uh, India under the British Raj and the Brits were doing very bad things to people of color um, uh, in, in, um, in, in their lifetime um, uh, so um, and, and, and as late as the Civil War, as you know, Lord Palmerston and the Brits gave serious thought to, to allying with the Confederacy. Um, that's, so, that's just so, a, so thank you for setting the historical record straight, even though you guys have taken a lot of ad hominem hits, you in particular, that are completely undeserved. And I just want you to know there are lots of people who well, really I, do I, respect what you're doing. You. And I'm willing to say that publicly, Gordon.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. But uh, it's easy for me because I'm retired and, uh, and I'm an old guy, but I feel bad for the younger generation coming along who feel intimidated and, un- and unable to speak out for fear of destroying their careers uh, or preventing their careers from advancing so that that's uh, that's too bad
0: well, i also think first of all i think it's important we, we should back up for one second and say exactly what it is we're talking about yes because um, even though we've, we've discussed done in previous
2: it, episodes but yeah. for this for, yeah. for
0: the
1: benefit of people who are just tuning into this episode Right. Well,
2: in the 1619 Project, Hannah Jones, who's a journalist working for the New York, the New York Times Magazine, the Sunday Magazine, uh, claimed that uh, the American Revolution was caused by the fear on the part of the Americans that the British 1776 were about to abolish slavery, and that would have... Uh, so that it essentially becomes a pro-slavery revolution. Uh, a revolution to save slavery from abolitionism uh, they've re- reconsidered some of that and said some colonists now uh, and then that's why they used the uh, November 1775 proclamation by uh, Governor Dunmore uh, who offered to, f- to, uh, to all, f- all all blacks and servants of patriots patriot planters Uh, Freedom, if they would flee and become part of the crown's uh, military, join the Ethiopian regiment, uh, as he called it, and uh, within the next three months, maybe 300 fled to the. This has become, in the mind of one historian, in the words of one historian, uh, the emancipation of, of uh, a proclamation that rivals. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War. Uh, now, there's a very different circumstance. So Governor Gunmore is, is in a desperate situation. He's fled from Virginia. He's on a warship in the ocean. Now, he can't even uh, govern. The revolution is is already taken place in Virginia, and the idea that this is the cause, that this is, uh, proclamation is changing minds it's just not, not, uh, not, not, not valid. The minds have already been changed. Virginia is well along in revolution, as many other states. The states that are hesitating at this point are the middle states, uh, New York, New Jersey, and, and, and some people in Pennsylvania. The, the Quakers in Pennsylvania are hesitating, but, but not Virginians. They're in the vanguard of revolutionary fervor. and To think that somehow something that occurred in November of seventy-five changed minds is just not not valid. Any anyway, rate, that's the gist of what what's at stake here. Uh, it, it's an effort to somehow make uh, put make blacks part of the uh, of the effort, and I understand that. Uh, and the black participation in the revolution—they actually. They were, they were, you know, the the final assault at Yorktown, uh, Hamilton's uh, regiment, he's in command of this. He has a, a lot of Rhode Islanders, uh, and the, those Rhode Islanders are integrated. There's this black participation. The American Revolutionary Continental Army at the end was, was an integrated army. It's really incredible. I don't think we have an integrated army again until the Korean War. So, we're missing a lot when we get caught up in these things. There's no doubt that, that blacks are, 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 uh, have been enslaved for, for 200 years or 150 years, and, and, and that, that's what is, it drives the, uh, the racial uh, discrimination that follows. Even though the, the North frees its slaves... It, it, it discriminates against blacks for the next 200 years. It's, only, it's really only in the last 50 or 60 years that, that blacks have been a major force in our civic life. They've been allowed to participate. Up to that time, they, they were discriminated against in many ways. So one can understand the anger, the bitterness, and the feelings, and, and I think we need to, to see the whole story in, in, that, in, in those terms. Um, so, I, I'm, I'm, but I'm hopeful for the future because I think, uh, as one friend of mine says, he thinks that the, the race issue is over because blacks are now participating in the political process in a way they never were allowed to do uh, earlier. Not just in, in in terms of voting, but in terms of being participants intellectually in the in the debates that take place. And there's all kinds of extreme voices being heard, but I think. In the long run, uh, it's going to work out, and I think it'll solve the same problem that John das Passus made. This the secret is intermarriage and and assimilation through that. That's it. that's exactly how the uh, Daspasos's two nations were, were 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 solved, and I think that's what's going to happen over the next uh, next two or three generations. Um, at least that's my hope.
0: Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, you, you, mentioned earlier, you called attention to, you know, Hannah Nicole Jones and, and, and the authors here, I think that to the extent that, uh, people were troubled by these, you might say, well, you know, it's a few lines in a very long document, you know, why does it matter? Um, but I think, you know, the New York times as the paper of record, um, being confronted with, you know, evidence of, 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 misstatement or factual error or so forth and, and doubling down on it. Um, that's a problem.
1: So, so I'm, I'm in agreement with Andy, but as we, I know, cause I know Gordon's time is, is limited. If I could, if I could bring things in a full circle, honestly, Gordon, here's my sense of, of, of you and your career. Um, uh, one of uh, we've talked about many things that that I particularly uh, admire in, in your work and that Andy does too. And Andy and I talk about you all the time behind your back, and we all say nice things about you, which is why Andy, of course, invited you to do the the Ever Scholar program with us, and that was so fun to hang out with you. Um, but. Um, you're, you're uh, if um, uh, and, and, and I, I, this this is what I actually believe um, uh, Gordon not only are you sort of a master of all different sorts of history and and, and blending them together and an astute observer of, of other stories if you have one vice here's what it is in my view I think you're generous to a fault um, um, you're very generous as an historian um, to people, um, to the, the, you know, the subjects of your history on all sides. I think you're sometimes a little too easy on John Adams, who's a crazy man and a total narcissist, but you actually kind of look the other way, and he's bigoted and um, all sorts of things, but you look the other way, uh, religiously and, and ethnically, um, because you try to see him um, at his best. Um, and I think you're actually a little too nice to Jefferson, who's a hypocrite in all sorts of ways. But, but you see him, and, and, and he has a, actually, a, 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 I think, a sad downward trajectory. He starts out with such ideals, and he ends up um, uh, prostituting them in, 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 in various ways. But, but you see him at his best as a utopian, as, as someone who imagines a, a better world. You, you emphasize his, his best words rather than his um, ugliest um, deeds. Um, and, and, and even when people are attacking you, I would say unfairly, Gordon, you're actually a model of what not just an historian should be, but a, but a scholar and a person, because I think you're being generous to a fault to people who actually maybe don't even deserve your generosity, but are getting it nonetheless. And so thank you for that role model.
2: Well, thank you. I appreciate that uh, c- coming from you. I, I'm, I'm very grateful for your for your support.
0: So I think we're going to wrap it up, but I did want to uh, read another quote from uh, Power and Liberty, on, uh, and maybe you can tell me who you had in mind here. Um, on page 40, you say, uh, So feared was magisterial power uh, that the Georgian Constitution required the annually elected governor to swear an oath that he would step down peaceably and quietly when his term had expired. Perhaps this was not an unfounded fear, as demonstrated in our own time by numerous so-called Republican rulers throughout the world, refusing to surrender their offices, even when defeated in an election.
2: Well, obviously, I had uh, I had that written uh, well before the uh, January of, of uh, 2021. Um, it was already in, in press and so on. But uh, it was applicable, I guess, for our own uh, society. But it's it's very common in Latin America and Africa to have Republican leaders um, resist uh, stepping down. Um, it was a little shocking to us to have somebody that we had elected feeling that way. <laughs> but that was not what I was thinking because it, it was – the the book was actually completed quite a while ago and Oxford held it back and didn't reveal I I had it done by January it was in press and uh, it wasn't until September they allowed it to be published I think they were trying to judge this COVID business for marketing purposes Um, so but it certainly is is something that uh, republics aren't Aren't necessarily the uh, be all and end all of of governments. In fact, when you think about it, half of half of Europe is made up of monarchies. quite successful ones, including Great Britain, Sweden, Holland. Um, they seem to be pretty good democratic states. So, monarchy, if it's done that way, is pretty successful. <laughs>
0: And you can win an Emmy if you write a if you have a uh, series about
1: it.
0: <laughs> Back to the Crown, which Andy, right.
1: you see, you got me hooked on a while ago, and thank you because I now know what everyone's talking about. <laughs> right.
0: Uh, I also just want to point out to our audience that uh, Chapter Five in, uh, in "Power and Liberty" is uh, all about slavery and constitutionalism. It's actually. a a very interesting discussion about what was going on at the time of the revolution uh, and leading up to it and then uh, as well shortly after it regarding slavery and anti-slavery uh, in America. And that, that, I think, will put the issues uh, that we addressed on very much in perspective. So I recommend that chapter to people that want you know more detail, more color on that.
1: Well, uh, Andy, just quickly, and then I know what I On that point, when talking about the arc of Gordon's career... Truthfully, slavery is not very prominent in creation of the American Republic. It makes a bigger appearance in um, uh, the radicalism of the American Revolution. I think it's brilliantly explored through a long um, uh, time period in Empire of Liberty. So there's a good example of you know the arc of an historian's career as as he. Or uh, I, and, and in the case of other people, she um, um, begins to think broader and more deeply as as the years go on. You know, themes that weren't you know because you can't do everything in your first book. Things that weren't there in the first book um flower in um in, in the later work. That was true for Ed Morgan too. Um, American slavery. Um, who was my teacher? Um um uh American slavery. American um, a freedom is kind of fairly late in, um, um, uh, uh, uh Morgan's uh, career and, and, his early stuff didn't talk as much about slavery. Right.
0: Gordon, you wanted to say something?
1: No, I, no, that's fine. I, I understand that. Of
2: course. Uh, you know, there is always the sense that one writes about what, um, what's going on in your own society. And, uh, we slavery became a big subject in in America really in the 1960s uh and david davis's volumes came out of that that the civil rights movement in a sense we we want to know where did this problem that we have come from and that so slavery's been investigated by uh, americans american historians pretty thoroughly over the last 60 years or so And that's something that uh, ought to be recognized by people who are now claiming that we've ignored it when it's not true. Uh, David Davis, who was a a Yale professor, and I knew him very well, um, was deeply involved in writing about slavery, as were dozens of other historians. So it's not just people in the last three or four years who've been working on slavery. It, It began, the really intensive investigations began in
0: the 1960s yes david b davis great uh, beloved professor at yale Yes. um and gordon wood great beloved professor from brown thank you so much for being with us today and uh, i hope we'll be able to have you back um, when your next sure, book comes out <laughs>
2: a lot of fun talking about history especially with you two guys all right thank you very much for inviting me
1: thank you thank you gordon